don't know what all this stuff is. I'll order for you. Don't they have brown rice and vegetables? Do you like brown rice and vegetables? Yeah. You do? Sort of. Really? It's worse than dog food. <laughs> it is. I've had dog food. You have? Mm-hmm. Long time ago. Doggy chow. I used to love doggy chow. <laughs> I used to love doggy chow, too. This is Why, with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. Now, let's talk about this article you had sent that, upon seeing it, we, we texted for two seconds, and I said, no, we have to talk, we have to save off this. Yes. It, it's the, it's, it's a ghost ship. It is a ghost ship. And there's ship. a long history of ghost ships. Mm-hmm. You have your Flying Dutchman. Yes. You have your Crawling Belgian. Mm-hmm. But there's a McDonald's ghost ship. It's it, it's called the McBarge. <laughs> it is. It is the proper I know, name. I know, I know. The McBarge. But the official name is the Friendship 500. And it was built for the World's Fair. Is that... It says... The article I'm looking at, I guess... I think I'm looking at a different one, so this makes it all the more enjoyable. Uh, for the 1986 World Exposition on Transportation and Communication. World's Air Fair Expo. It sounds really boring. Um, it was moored, fall, or hardwood floors, friendly decor, and the kitchen wasn't kept entirely out of sight. Well, as one does at McDonald's. Right. And it's not even the first floating McDonald's. It isn't? There's others? There was one in St. Louis that was showcasing the steamboat era. Wow. Mm-hmm. But here's oh, the wow. thing. It's been empty for 30 years, and it's still there. Is this McBarge we're talking about? or yeah. is this the No, McBarge. They don't even have a kids area, which is weird. Well, yeah, that is weird. Yeah, it featured hardwood floors and friendly decor, and the kitchen was kept entirely out of sight. Like McDonald's is known for its open kitchen concept. Well, right. That's it's not J. Alexander's. I don't understand. Yeah, and uh, then then this again the this is a website, the Ghost in My Machine, which sounds like you really need to get that looked at. Yes. Um, but they, they have to throw in the dig. The food was nothing to write home about. A McDonald's cheeseburger is a McDonald's cheeseburger, no matter where you eat it. But to that point, there has to be remnants of what makes up a McDonald's cheeseburger on the McBarge, which I have to believe mm-hmm. are still like as they were 30 years ago, because we've all seen those experiments of what right. happened, right? And I feel like there are perfectly intact cheeseburgers. So if the zombies come, right. we head to the McBarge 
for all of our Mickey D's delights, like throw in some cheeseburgers, some McRibs, big DLTs, and we'll be, you know, we'll make it a little while. Right. But here, here we go. Here's the most, I feel like you have buried the lead. What? As per, as per usual. No. So uh, the idea was for the McBarge to be relocated after the expo. That plan didn't work out. It was moored in an area called Falls Creek, which is a terrible name for a river. Yes. Um, before the owners of the site requested that it be moved. Why? Um, it was re relocated to an inlet. And then it's rediscovery, as with most things in this world. Do you know this part of the story? I don't think so. We can credit Wesley Snipes. What? Blade 3 was partially filmed on Nick Barge. What? Yes. Okay, Blade I didn't himself. bury that lead. I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I was excited because so, the staff all dressed in sailor garb. I thought that was the lead I buried. Nope. Wesley Snipes was on that uh, was on Mick Barge. Why isn't it in the historic registry then? Yeah, I don't know. And why I did mean, he save it? That's true. And looking at this picture, the it's got real uh, hardwood floors. And you're which, really big into the hardwood floors. Well, I'm just saying that is not a traditional McDonald's thing. McDonald's has those no. brown tiles that you can just hose off and act yes, like, but... you know, <laughs> let the second shift take over. They'll deal with True. this. But neither are sailor uniforms and a nautical interior and floating in Vancouver. Right, that's true. No, if you had to float in a province, I'd say Vancouver. Vancouver all yeah, day. Probably. Probably the best yeah, ones. Definitely. Queensland, I'm good. Um, yeah. It's got a great view, even it in does. this inlet. It does. It's, I mean, it could be, maybe it could be a yacht. No, that hardwood floor is, that's looking for someone to dance on it. How did you come to Showgirls? Did you quote unquote get it the first time? Or how long did it take you to sort of appreciate it the way your film appreciates it? <laughs> I came to it late in life. I was probably a little too sheltered to see it. When it first came out, I was probably still only uh, watching Saved by the Bell uh, when it was first in theaters. So um, it took me about 10 years to come around to it. And at that point, I had already, uh, I was aware that it had become a queer cult classic, but I feel like for whatever reason, I just never, um, I just never, it, I never took upon myself to watch it. And I feel like uh, Showgirls, I eventually saw it the way many of, of us see it where someone sits you down and says, you need to watch this right now. Um, and so, mm -hmm. or if it comes up and, and that was very much my case. I was with a friend uh, when I was going to uh, film school in Chicago and we were hanging out at his apartment one night and it came up and uh, he like walked over to his wall and popped it off and put it in. And, you know, my mind was just blown. Um, it, I, I was kind of primed to know that it was like bad in a good way, but I don't think I was really, I don't, I, I remember thinking, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and it just was like, you know, your heart starts racing and you just start to get really excited. And, you know, just the things, you know, so much is going through your mind um, 
that I uh, I just didn't want it to end. Why did you feel it was important to make it into a, to make the film? I felt like it was important because, um, well, A, I mean, it, I didn't really know in the beginning, I wasn't really quite sure what form it would take. And I, as a uh, television editor, you know, I had like, I, I know how to edit and I, that's something I can do. And I was inspired by other films about films like Room 237 in Los Angeles Place itself. And, and you know, uh, very kind of essay driven, commentary heavy, you know, clip heavy. And so it, in the beginning, it was just like, well, I'm curious about all of this and I don't really know where it's going to lead. Um, and so then, but after I started speaking with the, the people that, you know, but eventually interview, um, I, and, and seeing at what other types of films, you know, can, what is possible with kind of fair use and, and everything. I, I, I knew that this was something that I could explore on my own time without setting up any sort of, you know, expectations or, you know, I, I, I knew that this was something that I could do on my own, uh, on my kitchen table, on my laptop, uh, with the interviews and, um, I could figure it out and make, make something and whatever I made, I, there would be an audience there that would enjoy it and embrace it. Um, so, I mean, it's vastly you know, exceeded any sort of expectation that, you know, I had when going into it. So that's how it kind of, I landed on it. And that genre of films about films, when yeah. you then get to film unsuccessful or films about unsuccessful films, there's mm -hmm. not a lot. We were mm -hmm. thinking there's, um, what were you saying? Overnight, yep. but that's more of a, you know, verite. Um, mm -hmm. But then to the use of footage, I mean, I feel like I, I knew mm -hmm. it going in, but I feel like I could have guessed pretty early on that this was made by an editor. <laughs> the, the way you used the supplemental footage from Verhoeven's, can we say oeuvre? Yeah. Or, yeah, is, yeah. That, or is that sound pretentious? No, um, it does, but we it, like it, to be pretentious sometimes. Yeah. It, <laughs> yes, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It, I I don't know. I was just blown away by it. And I very much got a Tom Anderson vibe from like the Los Angeles plays itself or the, the Rock Hudson film he did. I, the, oh, yeah. Or or even uh, The Kid Stays in the Picture a little bit. Like mm -hmm. It's just, mm -hmm. it's such an amazing world that you build and you sort of drop us all in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while to acclimate yourself to what's what we're being about. Yeah. yeah, but it's it, it's a kind of wonderful world, and it you do such a great job. I don't know where the question is here. I should say yeah, that going in. That's okay. I, I, I can halfway through here, um, but like just the watching it, the stuff that's coming out of these people's mouths was just a continual case of me going, "Oh yeah, I never <laughs> thought about that." From right. Even this idea that this is the uh, unsexiest sex movie, yes. mm -hmm. and, and the way yeah. everybody has to talk about being naked while being naked, right. Right. it's just how did you find these folks? Was this an ongoing process? Because I know that obviously the writers would make sense, but then the the one woman who takes the film on almost as to reclaim herself and her mm -hmm. personality. I mean, it's it actually gets affecting and touching. And I would yeah. not have expected that in a movie about showgirls. <laughs> and that, yeah, I, I didn't, that was something I didn't really expect either. I mean, I knew there were, I mean, there's people, I mean, just kind of knowing 
the afterlife of showgirls, the cult of showgirls. There's their names that, you know, like the big names that you think of, you know, uh, David Schmader is kind of known as the unofficial ambassador of, of showgirls. He's kind of kept it alive through these annotated screenings that he's hosted. Uh, he started in Seattle and um, basically just kind of breaking it down and explaining why, how the terrible things and what makes it great about because of those terrible things. And so he's been doing these live screenings and then eventually got asked to do the commentary track on the re-release of the DVD. Um, so he, you know, he was obviously like the first person I reached out to. And then um, I re had recently discovered Adam Naiman's book, um, who was, was pretty new at that time, um, had just come out. And that was mind blowing because that was uh, just looking at it from a completely different lens of, of not uh, so bad it's good, but just the, the good things are what make it amazing and what make it kind of brilliant and kind of looking at it from more of a, uh, you know, the, cinematic pr perspective, you know, and just lo looking at, you know, kind of treating it like that. And so, and I hadn't read anything about that uh, before. And then just kind of diving deeper into, you know, the film quarterly roundtable, the reviews. Uh, I was aware of the Showgirls the Musical and um, I reached out to April Kidwell, who I knew also had played uh, uh, Jesse Spano in their previous musical, which was Saved <laughs> by the Bell musical. So I thought she was like, would be the perfect uh, person to kind of speak to embodying both of these 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 characters that you know are so kind of like iconic you know uh, that Elizabeth Berkeley played and um, you know I was just kind of so moved and and, and I mean I, I hadn't met her before this and you know we we had our kind of preliminary phone call and you know, I mean within 15 minutes she had kind of opened up and you know poured her heart and soul out and uh, I mean I had no idea of her kind of backstory um, all the trauma um and so I, I just was just inspired that you know she was willing to share all that and 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 just how much like the power that uh film has over us and i know that you know uh obviously you know films are important and everybody kind of takes what they want from them but this was something that you know was was deep and real and 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 it, it was a kind of a place i didn't really um expect to go but i you know i knew we kind of had to talk about some of those things just because of showgirls itself and what the content. Well, and that part of the film is really, it's amazing how you pull that off because this is a very, like the trauma is real, which obviously not to spoil anything for listeners who obviously haven't seen it yet, but you're handling it and then it's hilarity happening at the same time. And somehow it blends perfectly where you don't feel bad that you're laughing. You feel touched, mm -hmm. but you get over it and can move on. And it was right. amazing. Like, right. I don't know. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean the and that was one kind of going back to your your previous uh, thread. I mean that was one thing that I when I started the process, I went back and watched all of Verhoeven's early films, and I because uh, I hadn't seen them, and as you know, American audiences are only familiar with I feel like the the, the blockbusters, the Total Recalls, the Robocops, the Starship Troopers, and so that's how I knew him and. And um, so I was like, well, I should just watch these films just to see what's in there and just know, you know, get an idea of what he did before this. And and then my mind was, you know, blown watching those because I, I could see all these little threads kind of all pointing back to, to Showgirls and all these like strange moments that, you know, uh, are just kind of don't make sense and people can't really wrap their heads around like, <laughs> why was that decision made? And 
it, it all kind of his whole like I think people see showgirls as like this outlier amongst the rest of his work and and once you really look at it as a whole it all it's kind of Verhoeven at his purest and I thought that that kind of taking the the visual motifs and themes and cues um, and then tied it into the contributors experiences so that it kind of makes this new kind of subplot um, was was I you know was was interesting to me and I, I I just you know that was kind of like the point of what uh, what you're trying to say you know and it's fascinating I would not have thought you would be able to go back you know 20 years of a filmmaker's career especially with showgirls there are other yeah. folks you can go well of course yeah it's easy yeah there there are those retrospective you know films about you know De Palma and Spielberg you know right. that's that's the thing those are obviously fascinating but uh they're not really uh it's not really debatable you know what I mean like they're not you mm -hmm. know people people aren't gonna like argue with uh, a lot of those those filmmakers the work and, and I think with with showgirls one of the things that is so interesting about it is you know the reason that we're still talking about it is because we're not really done with it as one of the contributors said we're not done trying to figure out what it means and what you know what we think of it the, the response to it you know we're still kind of trying to wrap our heads around that and so I think it, it does it, it's just kind of the perfect snapshot and and it just kind of allows further conversation about what makes something good? What makes something bad? What makes something a success? What makes something a failure? Because it, it, it's checked every every one of those boxes, and you know, at one point. So, and right before we started here, one of the things we were discussing and debating was: Did Verhoeven and Esterhaz know what they were doing? And this is sort of mm -hmm. one of the central questions of the film. And I mm -hmm. feel like you constantly go back and forth between the two do you, what do you think i mean that was one thing obviously that's that's part of the allure to to yeah. showgirls is trying to figure out what the intent was and and i feel like it's it's pretty safe to say like whatever the intent was it really wasn't how it's it's not the picture that we got or not how it was received you know and what was received was something different and what what is celebrated i think is something different but what is celebrated those it is those failures are celebrated and it, it fails specifically it succeeds specifically because of those failures and so one of the yeah i mean obviously you know kind of getting into the, his mind would would be you know fascinating and trying to figure out trying to crack the code of like what was the intent but you know, looking at his responses, you know, over the years, I mean, I, th I found that interesting just to see how the, that has evolved. And, you know, I don't know if we really would have found anything new. And I, and I kind of considered, you know, their job done after the movie was over, you know, it's kind of like the audience's role is, you know, to take it, and you know, it becomes our, our thing, you know, and that's why, that's why we're talking about it. Well, I do think it is, it is, such a fascinating movie for I saw Showgirls at a midnight showing, the nice. the very first midnight showing, like wow. when it opened with my college roommate. Oh, wow. We were the only two women in the theater. <laughs> Lots of solo men in the theater. <laughs> Mildly That's creepy, right. but it was okay. Uh -huh. And I had grown and you got it like I graduated with Jesse Spano, like class of 93. 
Elizabeth Berkeley was from <laughs> nice. a town away from me. So we had all these other things going on. Oh. We saw the Michigan. film. I'm from Michigan. Yeah, you are? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Here I grew up in go. Troy uh-huh. and now I'm in Orchard Lake. I went to oh. Oakland University. I, oh, I grew gosh. up in Troy. Oh, you did? I went, I'm ancient. I went to, I, At- I went to I Troy went to Hot. Athens. Oh, my God. I graduated in 93 <laughs> with Jesse Spano. Okay. We're wow. rivals. I'll come back later. <laughs> You know, but yeah, but she went to Harrison, so she went to Farmington Hills Harrison, which I now live in Orchard Lake, so just down the road. But yes, so I was at the Showcase Cinema in Auburn Hills, right by Oakland (laughs) University, is where I saw it, like the right when it came out. Mm -hmm. We left, and we were like, "That movie was so awful, but it was so amazing." (laughs) But it was so amazing. Like we got, and we have talked about it. Yeah. For 20 odd years. And we all yeah. both own it on DVD. Occasionally yeah. we dig it out. And it's a, it's crazy. Two solo, like 20 so, whatever year old girls with a bunch of creepy guys stayed till the end. We should have probably mm-hmm. left, stayed till the end. And we loved it. Were you dressed like Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda? Because this is what I'm picturing. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> okay. Not but, that <laughs> <one>. <laughs> no. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I love and, that you're and, from and... Troy. <laughs> that's crazy that's so crazy yeah. how long did it take it for the film to turn from this you kind of open and open the movie where it's the film has come out it's sort mm-hmm. of an undimit i was gonna say sort of it is an unmitigated disaster nobody i think the woman from usa today is the only person to somewhat say good things how yeah. long did it take the film to make that turn to people going oh there's something here from yeah. either a camp perspective or really starting to appreciate what yeah. it is now. I think if you're, I think it take it took a special kind of person who had, you know, the fine tune like camp radar, you know, like <laughs> was really, really primed. And so I think there were people like Susan Mazina um, did mention some of the camp uh, aspects and that, that word did come up in some of the reviews, but um, it was actually, about a year, so it was pretty soon. Um, there was an article the year after it came out in the New York Times that, that was talking about you know midnight screenings of it, and and MGM was pretty, um, er, like was pretty early on. They they were kind of embracing that side of it. I guess they sent some drag queens out to some midnight screens in New York City to try to get you know audience participation. But it that from what I understand or what I've read, like that didn't you know, like that was fun and cool, but it didn't really feel that organic, you know? And when you had stuff like Peaches Christ, midnight screenings in San Francisco, and, you know, there was just a little bit more energy uh, and uh, just love for that. And so I think, I mean, Peaches Christ started his in, um, I think it was a year after it came out too. Um, so it, it was pretty, pretty quick if, if, if you knew. And then I think it, it just would eventually spread. I mean, it took me 10 years to see it. So, you know, I mean, eventually people would, you know, their friends would tell them about it. And, and um, but I mean, yeah, it was considered a bomb when it, it came out and it was ridiculed and made fun of. And uh, it, but, you know, but financially, I mean, commercially, it's, it's to this day, still one of MGM's highest grossing films based on the rentals and, you know, video rentals and DVD sales. So, uh, I mean, even from a commercial aspect, you know, perspective, you can't say it's a failure. And it's interesting, too, because you compare it to and you show clips in the film from Rocky Horror, from mm-hmm. Valley of the Dolls. Mm-hmm. They aren't getting that critical reappraisal and that sort yeah. of really in-depth. 
And that's where I get that Room 237 vibe, that people have mm-hmm. spent some time with this film. They have mm-hmm. lived in it, for better or for mm-hmm. worse. Um, they've really devoted some energy to this. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's what like Verhoeven probably brings to it. I mean, uh, Jeffrey Conway, the poet, ha- kind of used Showgirls as like the you know the 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 trilogy of camp, and that was you know his trilogy of camp was complete: Valley of the Dolls, Mommy Dearest, and and Showgirls. And yes, you, you still will have those films are celebrated amongst you know queer audiences, and you know we know those films and we love those films. But um, but I think with Showgirls, you know, Verhoeven just brings another kind of edge to it that. You know, I mean, he, it, there, there are people from all walks of life that are, you know, kind of fascinated and interested and curious by Showgirls. So, um, and I think because of the response and because of, you know, the last 20, 25 years of people celebrating it at the midnight hour, it kind of, I think, opened the door more for uh, critics and people to kind of reevaluate it and kind of take a second look. Um, because yeah, I mean that it, this. It, I mean this kind of reevaluation of it has been going on for quite some time, you know. Yeah. Um, I had. Give me a second. I'll come back. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think about interviewing anybody from the cast and crew, or was it? This is somebody else's movie now. This is these people that you talk to. I mean, yeah. That that obviously that. I you know, that thought always, you know, would pop into my head, but it, it was something I, you know, would always just kind of slap down and, and just like, that's not this movie. That's, that's, that's a, that's a different movie. And, um, you know, while those, those interviews would be interesting, I think, but, you know, I, I don't know if they would give us any more insight into our own kind of fascination and curiosity with it. And I think that what I love, what I enjoyed most about, you know, all these perspectives is, you know, it, it start all the, the dots kind of started to connect and, you know, people, these, you know, the contributors are, you know, brilliant. I mean, they, they, they're amazing writers and, you know, they've spent so much time thinking about this and, you know, I, so I just wanted to kind of just take everything and then find ways to kind of make it work as a, as a documentary, because that, that's what I found interesting was just, you know, the ways in which, you know, our relationship to the film has, has evolved and how it continues to evolve. Well, and you're and the elements you feature of, of the cast members and sort of their take or their spin on how they felt, mm-hmm. you know, what, what they felt they were going for, I think also continues that dialogue. And that's what part mm-hmm. of why Luke and I were sitting there at the beginning going, okay, wait, did they know? Did they not know? What was it? And mm-hmm. It does, you know, and at the seeing the end of the film, you you do kind of start to wonder, like, well, what's Elizabeth Berkeley going to do now? Like, do you, yeah. what do you think she's going to do now? Um, I don't know. I don't know what she's going to do now. I mean, I know that they they did a reboot of Saved by the Bell. Yeah. So I know she was working on that, and and you know, I think it, it it'll be something that it people. I mean, it, it's such a. a an iconic and classic like performance and role that like it's something that I mean it's it's why people flock to those screenings is that performance and, and I think that that performance was unfairly singled out um, you know that she was clearly following direction you know and it was the way she was directed and I was glad to see you know five years ago Paul Verhoeven you know kind of took a little bit more ownership of that um, and so you know I I think that. Yeah, it's hard to say um, because I mean, obviously she's had a much 
different experience to this, this whole, you know, that, that, you know, is completely, I would imagine painful and, you know, it just, so I, yeah, it's hard to know what people take from it. But one thing I know that the fan, I mean, what was so nice about that, that screening was the fans and the people that love the film and love that character and love her just wanted to, to see like that acceptance and that, that um, embrace and it, it just they, we want everyone wanted it, what us to feel like there was like a, a we're at peace we're happy we're embracing this and let's let's just enjoy all this together and I think that that gave so many so many people so much joy you know that have loved this film for the last twenty five years. Yeah. Do you think she's seen your film? Do you know if she has? I don't know. We haven't heard yet <laughs> because it seems like that would be especially for her. Uh, yeah. Further, I, I, yeah, just further, further uh, encouragement is probably the wrong word, but sort right. of a gratitude for like, no, people are getting it, people are figuring it out. Yeah. Do you know if any I, of the casting crew have seen it? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's available now, so I would imagine it would probably be hard to 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 not to to not watch it. But uh, I mean, we haven't. We haven't heard anything. Um, I mean, it wouldn't kill Joe Esterhaus to throw down the four bucks and rent it. <laughs> Let's yeah. be honest here. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, I hope they can appreciate it and enjoy it. And, you know, um, I can't imagine. The, the, yeah, be part of the conversation, you know, I mean, cause you know, it'll, it'll, it'll come up in, in interviews and, and, and I, I just, yeah, you just want to, yeah, you just want to make sure everyone is, okay with what you know where they are with it and just know that now there's you know so much love and support and you know embrace of of the film and uh yeah from the directorial side was your plan never to show the interview subjects did you film them or was it just always going to be just audio and drop everyone in the movie yeah i, I kind of that was the the how i approached it and i kind of gave myself that challenge from the beginning and and knew that, um, and you know, I was, like I said, I was inspired by room, movies like Room 237 and Los Angeles Plays Itself. And I liked that, like kind of just stream of consciousness feel of, of those things. And I, and I thought it would be interesting to apply that to something, you know, um, a little bit more controversial, something more, you know, that we haven't fully decided on what it means yet. And, and I, uh, so yeah, and that was one way I was able to kind of get so much done on my own was that we, I just sent audio kits out to each contributor. So I had the same box, you know, with, with mm. recording gear and I would FedEx it to each, you know, uh, contributor. And then when our interview was done, we would talk on Skype. And, um, and then once it was done, I would uh, kind of talk them through how to like box it back up and, you know, FedEx would pick it up the next day. And so I did that over uh, the course of, I think six or, six or nine months i can't remember um and then once all those were done then i transcribed them and started kind of scripting and moving stuff around so i was able i mean it was because of that 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 was why i was able to kind of get so much done on my own it was just mm -hmm. like okay like this is this is my format i'm gonna go with it and um i'm just gonna try to try to make this work <laughs> And you said talking with everybody about what the film means to them. I guess one of my final questions is, especially given all the time you've put into the film now, what does it mean to you now? It's, um, that's a tough question because it's, it's changed my life, you know? Um, 
it, it's it's hard to look at it the same way again. Um, I still enjoy watching it, but um, but yeah, it, it's it's interesting because you know uh, there you know there is this kind of loyal fan base of the film and people who love it and quote it and you know just you know just fully embrace it and and you know you kind of just want to absorb everything that has you know the showgirls has been written and it's just interesting that now this documentary is is kind of part of those other you know it'll sit next to all those other books and pieces and musicals and um yeah so it's it's, I'm, i'm proud of it and You Don't Know Me is available to watch in the U.S., U.K., and Canada right now. For those links, go to the movie's website, youdon'tknowmefilm.com. Be sure to follow Why the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check out our YouTube channel for some additional great Why content. If you're so inclined, please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Today's show is produced by myself and Heidi Hedquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sove and Sandy Stone. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mustonen. Our intern is Randy Jeanette. The theme song was performed by the Electrosyntheno Magnetic Polyphonic Orchestra. This one's for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Okay, ladies, I'm Tony Moss. I produce this show. Some of you probably heard that I'm a prick. I am a prick. I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. Let me take a look at you.